Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, and we're always thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to quickly tell you about one of our exhibitions, we have families flocking to New York Historical to see the art and whimsy of Mo Willems, an exhibition on view now of the children's book author and illustrator's work, along with a number of other wonderful exhibitions. And we just encourage everyone, if you're not a member already, to pick up a brochure and look at all the exhibitions and programs coming up and consider becoming a member. The membership supports all the programs we do. Today's program, Grandmother Power, the Roosevelt's, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished, Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'd always like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give Mr. Schwartz a hand. The program this morning will last an hour, include a question and answer session. And um, Leslie, you'll be staying for a book signing. Yes, and I have her book right here. Um, this is a great Mother's Day gift, everyone. Um, I'm already signed up for three books she's gonna sign, so get your books. They'll, they'll be on sale in um, our museum store kiosk which will be just near the author's book signing table. So I'm just gonna hand the book off now. And also Jeffrey Ward will have his book here on the Roosevelt's and another, I believe another book. So Jeff will be here as well. So to begin, we are so glad to welcome Jeffrey C. Ward back to New York Historical. He's the author of 18 books, including A First Class Temperament, The Emergence of Franklin Roosevelt, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Parkman Prize of the Society of American Historians. A longtime collaborator with Ken Burns, he has won seven Emmys and written 32 historical documentaries for PBS, and he's 33 years old. <laughs> either on his own or in collaboration with others, including the Roosevelt's and Intimate History, which is why he's here today. And we are always so thrilled to welcome Leslie. Leslie has been with us so many times. She um, lives close by, so we just call her up and say, come on over. Um, Ms. Stahl has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for over 20 seasons, and she's 21. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, she was the CBS News, White, CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. During much of that time, she also served as moderator on Face the Nation, CBS News's Sunday public affairs broadcast, where she interviewed Margaret Thatcher and Yasser Arafat, as well as virtually every other top US official. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, <clears throat> including a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. Her new book is, as I showed you, Becoming Grandma, The Joys and Science of the New Grandparenting. And it, <laughs> yes, thank you. I, I gave my book away, so thank you, Leslie. Her new, and um, as, as I said, it makes a great Mother's Day gift. So, um, and, I don't know if you've been watching TV or listening to the radio, but every time I turn it on, Leslie's on. She's on, was on Char, Char what? 
you're selling and talking up great stuff. I mean, this, this book is amazing. She's been on Charlie Rose, PBS's NewsHour, Bill Maher, and I heard it, that was a very funny show where you kind of <laughs> steered Bill Maher into the, what the conversation was I gonna be about. <laughs> <laughs> so before we begin, I just asked if you have a cell phone, beeper device that you please turn it off. And now join me in welcoming our wonderful guests. Thank you. Well, I've been asked to speak very briefly about the book before we turn to Q&A about the Roosevelts. The Roosevelts are in the book, which is why this pairing made sense. But let me tell you first about this book. Um, I had a friend tell me that writing a book about being a grandmother was nuts. She said, you're gonna tell everyone you're that old? She said, don't do it. But I started writing, and I did so with great trepidation because of what my friend said. But the more I got into it, the more courage I had, especially when I found out that Mick Jagger is a great-grandfather. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, eventually, I came to see that when you become a grandparent, you do not become older, you become younger. As many of you, I can tell by looking around, know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> when we take care of our grandchildren, and studies back this up, um, we get healthier, we have less depression, and overall, we are happier. And now that the baby boomers uh, are becoming grandparents, we have power in numbers. Listen to this st statistic. There are 30,000 new grandparents in the United States every week, and that's, I, that, I couldn't believe that, but it's true. As baby boomers, this giant bulge, become grandparents, um, think about how that group, that cohort, has marched through our lives, defining, affecting, and changing our entire culture, our mores, our tastes, in music, in clothes, in everything. And now they are inventing a whole new way of grandparenting. Boomers have more energy than grandparents of old. We certainly look younger. No more tightly permed gray hair. Look, we are all blonde, <laughs> a given. And we have more money. And we are spending it on our, on our grandchildren. Listen to this thing I found out. Grandparents today spend seven more times money, seven times more money on their grandchildren than they did just 10 years ago. And we are, for example, paying for their medical bills, paying for daycare, straightening their teeth, and we are buying stuff, and I'm not talking about toys, we're buying big ticket items, we're buying the crib, we're buying the baby, the, the, the car seat. And I know one grandparent who bought them a piano because I want, my daughter wouldn't practice and I'm determined to get my, the little ones. Um, so as someone said to me, there are three phases in life. In the first phase, we believe in Santa Claus. In the second phase, we don't believe in Santa Claus. And in the third phase, we are Santa Claus. <laughs> so the reason I wanted to write this book is because the first time I held my first grandchild, I had a thunder jolt of elation it was so powerful, it affected my entire body, from my brain to my toes. And it was so 
enormous that I kind of felt like one of those big trucks with those giant wheels as this surge of loving um, rumbled through my body. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a new kind of loving in its purity and in its depth. Grandparent love is unfettered. It is unconditional. Someone wise told me that if God had turned to Abraham and told him to sacrifice his grandson, he would have said, forget it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and becoming a grandparent metamorphosizes us. No matter how strict, no matter how concerned we were with molding our own children into good citizens, into a people who can make it on their own in life, the minute that grandchild is born, boom, we are indulgent, we are softies. The our ability to say the word no is completely disabled. I mean, we are completely changed in every conceivable way. And I also found out that a lot of grandparents today walk on eggshells. We are terrified of antagonizing the parents of those grandchildren, our sons and daughters. We're, we're afraid because we understand that they hold the keys to our access to those children. The most dreaded words to us are, no, you, we don't want you to come over today. Whoa, that hurts because all we want are those babies. Uh, we are the babysitters who beg to come over and we don't charge a dime. We learn pretty quickly that the balance of power in the family shifts because our children now hold the key to the most important thing in life, which is those babies. So what we do now as grandparents is we bite our tongues. We do not, we try very hard not to say, look, we didn't raise you that way and you turned out okay. We don't say that. We ingratiate ourselves and we suck up to the daughter-in-law which is a perfect segue to Jeffrey Ward to talk about the Roosevelts. In one sec, I'm going to pull out. I have my book. Just want to show it to you one more time. Great Mother's Day present. You want me now, to hold it? You want to hold it up? Now I'm going to put it away because I'm getting tacky. But I want to show you Jeffrey Ward's new book that he did with Ken Burns, which is, if you didn't see the Roosevelt documentary, you have to go find it. It's on a DVD. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. And you learn all kinds of new things. And you can see I've gone through it, and I've got my stickies out here. But let's first, Jeffrey, talk about the relationship, um, speaking about mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law, between Eleanor and Franklin's mother, Sarah. Was it as bad as, we, as the impression we have in our head? The, the impression we have is because it's Eleanor. Now, I have a terrible problem with this. I'm going to call. Eleanor Roosevelt, Mrs. Roosevelt, because you get confused in these things. Uh, Miss, our version of Sarah Delano Roosevelt is Mrs. Roosevelt's version. And it's, it's a version she came to very late in life. She, uh, her upbringing was so awful, so emotionally arid, so devoid of real parenting. She had a... Uh, not only a drunken father, but a demented father. 
who was there and not there and seeing visions and telling her he loved her and that he was going to come and sweep her off and they were going to live in Europe and be happy ever after and then disappearing and finally dying. And her mother was distracted and disappointed in her. So she had no model parent. So when she became first a wife and, and then a parent, she relied enormously on Franklin's a mother. Um, oh, wait, what, she relied on her or Sarah took over? Well, Go ahead. we have, you know, there are many people who write about the Roosevelt's with different views. I'm, this is my view. Um, Sarah Delano Roosevelt was happy to fill the vacuum. God knows. She was the most devoted mother that there ever was. But uh, Eleanor was terribly grateful that she, at the time that she took over uh, hiring nannies, that she gave her child-raising advice. Um, later in her life, that some of that stuff became, I think, became sort of distorted. And she began to see it as uh, somebody taking over her life. When, she, when it was happening, she was grateful for it. it she, she developed, and, uh, and she was, since we're talking about grandmothers yeah, uh, and yeah. grandparents, let, let me just go on to that. Please, um, please. Uh, I've, I knew three of the Roosevelt children. All of them believed that, that their grandmother had really been their mother, that she had provided them Whatever you think of her, she had provided them with the uh, unconditional love that you mentioned. She just adored them. They could do no wrong. She spoiled them dreadfully. That's they a grandmother. They, exactly. They couldn't wait to get to Hyde Park and be with her. That was their real home. They all told me that that was their real home. Part of that was because uh, their father had fallen ill with polio, and when they were at very formative ages as children, he really wasn't home. He was in Florida or he was in Warm Springs trying to get back on his feet. And that left them with their mother, who did not believe in unconditional love. She, she in a passage, I, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but in her one of her things she wrote, she said, um, I have always believed that one must earn the love of people around you. And that she learned that in her childhood. That's how... That's how she had been raised, and she really believed it, but she carried it on with her own children. She did not, you know, do the, sort of do the opposite thing that you would sort of hope she would have done. She, she, she was an extremely stern um, mother. You were not to tell, if you felt ill, you were not to tell her, so Roosevelt didn't, uh, didn't get sick. Uh, it, she, she, was, she was not a comforting mother. And then the rest of her life, she spent being haunted by having not been a good mother. Yeah. And, and she reached a point late in her life when she um, considered killing herself because of that. Really? Mm -hmm. Now that I had not known. Yep. Well, I want to ask you to, I'm going to pull out some anecdotes sure. um, that I read in your book and that I, and some of which I wrote about in mine. <laughs> First off, um, later in, well, to back up what you're saying, Curtis Roosevelt, one of 
Sarah Delano's grandsons. Grandchildren, right. Great-grandsons. Grand no, grandson, grandson. Grandson, Anna's son. Wrote a book. And in it, he, he kind of said what you're saying, that this portrait of Sarah that we've all heard about as a monster was grossly unfair and suggests that Eleanor got to write the history. I mean, it, it is who, whoever gets the last word when it comes to history, who writes it, who talks about it, and that Eleanor had the last word, and she's the one who painted this portrait. So it's exactly what you're saying. Curtis complained about it in his right. book, right. and again said that, that Sarah was the most loving, most fun, most indulgent, delicious, and, and uh, Anna, you quote Anna as saying she just wanted to be with her grandmother. Yeah, I mean, they all did. It was, it, you were free to do, I mean, you weren't free. Uh, she, you, you talked about getting that piano. She, um, she gave him everything. <laughs> she gave him everything, but she also had very, very strict views. I, she would, if, you, if they'd been riding, for example, she had a stable of horses. If they came to lunch without changing their clothes, she would say, you reek of the stables. And then they would run up and, and, and get dressed. I mean, it was a very formal household. But if you, if you followed the rules, um, you had a wonderful time there. But according to Eleanor, um, Sarah could be very cruel to her. Sure. You write about a, a, an incident at the dinner table about hair. Tell that one. Yeah, they all sat down to dinner, and she said something like, uh, you'd look so much better, dear, if you ran a comb through your hair before we ate. This was, that was in front guests. of everybody. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh, oh. And yeah. other things like that. Yeah, well, I think, but that's, that's true and awful, but it's also part of the same thing I was talking about. She, Eleanor felt she needed help with all those things initially. Later, of course, she didn't. And she became the first lady of the world, and she was still being treated that way. And of course, she resented it. You touched a little bit on how Eleanor's mother had treated her. She made her feel unlovable. And this is interesting to me. She called, her mother called her granny. Mm -hmm. Because was she that? was, um, because she very rarely laughed, and she was very prim and proper. And she, she tried to be the only, I think, as a little girl, the only person in the family who was, uh, who, who did all the right things. And, and, and the, the mother. The mother was a beautiful socialite. Yeah. Uh, the, the most pathetic thing to me, I think, is Mrs. Roosevelt in her autobiography says that her mother often had migraines and would be in a darkened room and lie there uh, having a headache. And this little girl would go in and rub her forehead, and it made, it made her feel better. And she said, that's when I learned that to be, to be loved is to be useful. Now, she was five years old. Think how sad that is. So it sad. really is. Um, <clears throat> Alice, Long, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Mm -hmm. Um, who famously said, if you have anything nice to say, no, if you have, if you have, if you have nothing, nothing nice, to, nice say, to say, come sit by me. That's yeah, right. That's yeah. one. And she was put off by Eleanor, too, because Eleanor did not have a very strong sense of humor and was doer, and Al Alice it was fun-loving. But here's what I found so ironic, in a way, because Alice had this sort of flighty image around the country. Um, while Eleanor became a cold and distant grandmother, Alice 
was doting and indulgent and like the rest of us. She became kind of Sarah, in a way, to her yeah. own grandchildren. And Eleanor went the other way. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I guess I, I don't quite think she was cold and distant. I think, but I think she was proper, and she wanted her grandchildren to do the again to do the right thing. Um, uh, they, we, we were talking about this before. Um, FDR's children uh, called to their grandmother Granny. Eleanor Roosevelt's grandchildren called her Grandmère in French. And, that um, says it all. <laughs> it says a lot. Yeah, it, it does. Says it, all. it does. Um, they were fond of her, though. I've never, I've never talked to any of them that, that didn't, they weren't fond of her, but it was an event to go see her. She was Mrs. Roosevelt. Even to our That was different. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, we're going to get to FDR as a grandfather in one minute. But first, uh, Jeff, when you and I spoke on the phone the other day, and we were sort of mapping out the areas of, of subjects here. Um, you said, I want to talk about your book. And I said, why? It's, uh, well. No, you said no, it's because I'm a grandfather. Yeah, because I'm a grandfather, right. And I write about grandfathers. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but this is a fascinating book. Um, it's a it's a treacly, could be a treacly subject, and it is not a treacly book. It's really smart. I, I liked I liked reading it a lot. I am a grandfather, of course, <laughs> and uh, it is a unique it is a unique role, and it made, it what it does do is make you think about your own grandparents. Um, mine. This is a, a diversion from the Roosevelts, but my um, my great grand my great grandfather was a was the Bernie Madoff of the 1880s. He was a, a big time really? swindler. He brought on the crash on Wall Street. And he kidnapped his son, who was my grandson, and he did not know his father. Are you serious? No, I am. Yes, no, I'm making this up. No, I'm, I'm dead wow, serious. Wow. The result of that was that my grandfather was the best grandfather. I mean, I'm sure everybody thinks their grandfather was the best, but mine was the best. When we were there, he was riveted with attention, and he would made, I remember I was interested in knights, one, one year when I was very small. When I arrived, he'd made a complete wooden helmet, shield and, and sword, all painted beautifully. He was a professor of medieval art, so he knew how to really do that. <laughs> and he built us, uh, he had uh, German uh, stone bricks, uh, which nobody makes anymore, but they were spectacular. And they were, uh, I don't mean bricks, blocks, I mean. And she, he would build for Christmas every year a different cathedral out of these that oh. were, you know, this high and as long as a ping pong table with stained glass windows that lit up and all that. And that's, that's sort of what I think of when I think of grandfather. And I also, if you have a grandfather like that, it makes you feel terribly inadequate. There's nothing, I cannot build a castle for my, for my grandchildren. Well, what I found out in my research <laughs> is that your exactly what your grandfather did is what grandfathers are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to give their children, their grandchildren skills mm -hmm. and talk about the family, their family history, and tell their grandchildren stories uh, that give the kids a sense that they are connected to something wider and important and, of course, love them and play with them. Yep. Yep. So let, that's a good segue 
to Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a grandfather. Because I, I, I was so intrigued, I, I, I couldn't stop writing about this in here. <clears throat> well, I, he, I'm, he didn't have much time to be a grandfather. Uh, he read, uh, he read uh, Christmas, uh, uh, you know, the Dickens thing. Uh, for, at Christmas every year to his children, they all sat around him. And the saddest thing is it was recorded and they lost the recording. Oh. One of the kids lost it. Can you imagine? No. FDR reading, no. reading Dickens? It's too good. Oh, well, yeah. I have to tell you what I found out and yeah, why this is so devastating. Now, I was only looking for, for, for him as a grandfather, mm. so I concentrated like yeah. a laser beam. And I discovered that he had two grandchildren who lived in the White House. I was looking for grandchildren who lived in the White House, so that, sure. was, that was my first line of attack. And I found out that when Anna got divorced, his daughter, she moved into the White House with her two little kids. Curtis is one of them. Curtis, Curtis. Sisty and... Buzzy. Buzzy. Sisty <laughs> and Buzzy. And the whole country was in love with these little children who were running around the White House for a while. And... Franklin had his morning staff meeting in his bedroom. And he would have his bre breakfast tray brought in, put, on the, put up on the bed, and then his staff would come in, and sometimes members of the cabinet would come to this meeting. Right. And at some point, invariably, these two little kids would burst into the bedroom because they had free reign to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't get enough of these little kids in the, in the White House. So they would jump in, and he would say, come on, get up on the bed. So there's the tray, the secretary of the <laughs> treasury, and all the staff. And then he would have one kid on the left and one kid on the right, and he would pull out the funnies. Now, in those days, the funnies in the newspaper, we all remember this, were everything. And he would read the funnies, which I'm sure was the way he read Dickens. Sure. And e he played every character. Yeah. He sure. played, you know, in, in the, the dialect and so forth. And these children just giggled with laughter. And all these men are standing around virtually every day and had to put up with this through the crises and whatever else was going on in the world, including the Depression. So he was, when he did have his grandchildren around him, uh, like your grandfather, yeah. like, attentive and adorable yeah. and everything you know, we thought of Roosevelt in terms of his e-intelligence yeah. and wonderful manner. So he was a great grandfather he, when he uh, had the kids around. You know, when um, in 1944, after he'd been elected, he knew that he was very ill. And for the first time at Christmas, he asked that all of the grandchildren come, and there are pictures of them, and that obviously that he'd be saying goodbye to them, I think. Wow. But they all, there's a picture of them all sitting on the floor around it, there are a lot of them, there are many, yeah, many I, marriages and many, many grandchildren. And uh, he looks awful in the picture, but also pleased to be there. Yeah. He put swings and slides on the White House lawn, which I guess had never been done before, because he was trying to lure the grandchildren to come and visit. Well, well Eleanor wasn't. I, let me just say, that the, it's the, it's, that's the, another example of the, the whole premise of the Roosevelt show was that Theodore and Franklin were, you wouldn't have had Franklin without Theodore. And Theodore's family, not his grandchildren, but his children, were all over the White House. And they were trying, I think, it, the fact that 
the pe- the press got so interested in those kids was sort of because oh. it, that it, that had sold so many newspapers during Theodore's time. So it was deliberate. I see. No, 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 no. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. No, you didn't. You, You've been at the White House. You know these things. No, but a it's lot complicated. of a, a lot of times uh, the, these uh, children are used to soften the image. Yeah. Oh, I don't think it was. I don't, I don't think, think it was anything that. cynical. No, no, no. I didn't mean it that way. Okay, um, I'm going to get back to the book. I want to know about your relationship with Ken Burns because you have done several documentaries for television with him. Um, obviously, t- twenty. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you were telling me before about the the relationship between the FDR documentary and the one that Ken did on baseball that you did with sure. him as well. Sure. I may have told this story here before. I can't remember, but. Um, uh, when Ken wanted to do baseball, that is not a subject I know anything about at all. And uh, it was going to be nine, I can't remember whether they're two-hour episodes or one-hour episodes, but I think it's 18, it's, I think it's 18 hours on history of baseball, wow. about which I know nothing and care less. <laughs> and my sort of deal with Ken was that at some point we would do the Roosevelt's if, we, if, I, if I did his great enthusiasm he would do mine, and and so we did that. And next, you go, you're doing another one with him? Yeah, Vietnam, which will be out uh, in the fall of 2017. You're working on it right now? Yeah, I'm, yeah. Writing, I'm writing the book. There's a The show is done, or mostly done. So are we going to get a book like this? I'm afraid so. The reason I'm walking around with this, it's we're, but it's fabulous. Honestly, it's fabulous. We're, Filled with pictures. We're going to publish it with a suitcase. <laughs> Make it a rolly. All right, before we take questions from the audience, um, I have to ask you, the, the, the documentary and the book are really a, about relationships, the relationships that Theodore Roosevelt had with his family and other people, and the same with Franklin. Um, and I became very interested reading this book um, in their extracurricular or other relationships. So let's ask for your take first on Franklin's uh, relationships with other women, Lucy Mercer and Daisy Suckley. So tell us about those two. Well, he had an affair with Lucy Mercer. I don't think there's any any question about that. She was Eleanor Roosevelt's social secretary during the First World War. She was absolutely beautiful and absolutely worshipful, and he fell in love with her. And they may or may not really have discussed marriage. Nobody knows for sure. That's the story in the family. Uh, and Mrs. Roosevelt said she would agree, and and Mama said, um, you will be cut off from the family money, and uh, Louis Howe said, you'll never be elected president of the United States if you're divorced. So he allegedly, for those reasons, who knows what the reasons were, did not marry her. Later in life, she came back to see him at the White House when when he was ill and she was much older, uh, and I don't think that was anything more than a friendship that he needed during the war when his wife was away and was not, he, he was a person who needed, because of his mother, he needed, uh, he liked women and he needed them to be around him and to admire him. He needed ad- adulation. He did. His mother had He did, because worshiped. she had adored him. That's correct. No, that's right. And. And uh, Mrs. Roosevelt could do many things, but she couldn't do that. She was a very critical person, and and uh, 
he was not always admirable. <laughs> um, uh, and Lucy thought he was just wonderful. You know, we do think of Mrs. Roosevelt as being just the most wonderful, heartfelt, almost delicious person because she took up so many causes. Um, but, you know, she, she was cold. And she, she was, was cold to him. She was, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer of hers, but I, she was uh, a very damaged person. She's a miracle, I think, of the human spirit not to have collapsed under the weight of all the things that she had to endure when she was young. But, um, but it scarred her. And uh, she, it was very hard for her to have a good time. It was very hard for her to get a joke. Um, and The opposite of him. And the opposite, exactly, the opposite of him. He loved a good time. He was a good time, you know. Yeah. Um, Daisy Suckley, let me just do yeah, first. Yeah, Daisy Suckley. Daisy Suckley was his distant cousin. There is, despite that god-awful movie that somebody made with Bill Murray, I can't remember the name of it, and I wouldn't <laughs> tell you if I knew it. Um, uh, he did not have an affair with, with Daisy Suckley. She was his distant cousin. Uh, she got to know him well when he was uh, recovering from polio. Uh, at, at, or not recovering, but trying to build himself up after po polio. Um, and uh, was, again, was, was worshipful and became his, as the book I did, his closest companion. She really was that, and she was the great secret of his life. She kept a diary, which I was privileged, sorry, which I was privileged to, uh, to be the first person to see, and I got to edit it. And it was a great, it's one of the joys of my life. There's nothing for a historian like being handed oh. a journal of somebody that everybody thinks they know and, and discover that this, that there's this very intelligent woman writing about this man in an intimate way that no one else ever did. So, But you don't think they had an affair? No. Weren't they going to live together? Yeah, but that doesn't mean they were going to have an affair. Okay. That's another. No, they we'll weren't. come back and talk she about that. She thought that they were going to live together. He had told several other women that they might be there to be helpful with him, helpful to him. <laughs> they were all, all right. disappointed. <laughs> um, let's talk about Eleanor and her other friends. There was the bodyguard, Earl Miller. Yep. And there's a picture in this book of her and him, and she's got her hand on his thigh. So that suggests something. And then later with the newswoman, Lorena Hickok. Tell us about those two. And there's Joe Lash. There, there, there are several people with whom she had. Um, I am not of the, of the Eleanor Roosevelt is a lesbian school. First of all, I don't think anybody ought to be put in categories like that. And secondly, I, I don't think she had a physical relationship, if that's what we mean, with any of those people. She dearly loved all of them. She was in some ways like a, like a teenager who gets, again, I think it's part of that childhood, um, who gets crushes on people. And they became absolutely wonderful in her mind and they could do no wrong and they were enormously helpful. And more important, she could help them do something. Yeah. And then she would become disillusioned with them, just the way she had thought her father was the most wonderful person that ever lived, and then realized on some level, though never entirely, that he was not anything like that. 
And so she had this, this sort of, uh, you know, if you, if you graphed it, this enormous enthusiasm. And then, and then after a while, if people didn't need her anymore, they couldn't love her. And therefore, she would move on to another one. And at the end of her life, she had a whole lot of them uh, all sort of clustered around her, mutually antagonistic, I'm sorry to say. So it was a sort of strange circle. And uh, all, of, all of whom adored her and felt that they had not gotten enough of her somehow. Does that make sense? Yeah, she couldn't, yeah. She couldn't cross a line. Maybe was that because I mean I can't you know I can't prove she didn't cross the line I just don't think so. Um, do you think that's because Franklin hurt her or because of her childhood? I think it's because of her childhood. But she was really devastated. Yes, wasn't she was she, by the Lucy Mercer discovery. But it was, it was the same. I think the same kind of confirmation about her father that here's this yeah. golden person, right. and then they turn out not to be golden and. Most of us deal with that better than she And they did. reject her. And they reject her, and then, of course, they reject her because she's rejectable. You know, the, there are pictures of her in this book when she was young, when she was seeing Franklin in the beginning, and mm -hmm. she's beautiful. She was. Yeah, she was beautiful. She was. She didn't know it. She didn't think she was. And, of course, the pictures we see um, of her, she's not, but, but she was, and uh, it, that's something that surprised me. We're going to invite you all to, take, to come up to the microphones in the aisles and ask questions, and while we're setting up for that, let me ask you one final um, from me, and that is as you delved into the personal relationships of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt wing, um, what was the biggest surprise for you? given the, what you've learned in your other books and what the general impressions of these people. You mean when we did this? Or whenever. What's the newest, the latest surprise that you came upon in the relationships? Huh. I, I guess um, I, my theory was that Theodore Roosevelt was terribly important in the lives of both Eleanor, who was his niece, and Franklin. Uh, and that was just strengthened. The more, when I thought about it, just the number, the sheer number of times that you could see the connection, that you could see FDR trying to be like TR, uh, rejecting TR, you know, I, I, he was a huge figure to both of them. Yeah, and, and he, he tried. And she saw herself all her life as a member of that family. She, you know, when she was very old, she said, uh, Somebody told her to sit down and relax. And she said, you know, I don't think I really can. I, I can't sit and knit in the corner. I'm, I'm too much of Theodore Roosevelt's niece. Well, he did that. love her. He was one of the few in her, right? Am I wrong about he that? He loved her when he saw her, but he didn't saw her very, see her very often. Uh, and her, his, his wife actually didn't want her to come to, to the Theodore Roosevelt home because they believed in us that somehow Eliot's problems would be visited on her. And there's an awful letter in which she said, I've, I, I don't encourage Alice. Eliot being her father. Yeah. yeah. I don't encourage Alice to see Eleanor because uh, we don't feel that's a good idea. Oh. So pretty grim. She did have So that's grim. why she's a wonder. Yeah. You called her a wounded person. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do we? Please. 
Good morning. Um, first of all, the book sounds fascinating. I'm going to get copies not only for me, but for the other grandmothers. I share a set of grandchildren with two other grandmothers. So thank That's you. That's something I write about, these, fa these families where a child goes to grandparent day and brings eight people with them. Right. Yeah. We, we have a handoff system and everything, yep. so yes. Um, I, was, I was intrigued by what you said about Eleanor Roosevelt looking back and regretting the way she raised her children to the point where she considered killing herself. I never heard that. So I was hoping you could um, talk about that a little more. When um, she was a, a, an elderly lady living alone in New York. She had a very dear friend who was her doctor, um, yes. was sort of the yes. last person yes. to whom... He was foreign, I believe, or... He yeah, came, yes. he was an absolutely wonderful doctor and a wonderful friend to her. And they used to take walks at night. She couldn't sleep. And they used to take the walks at night. And she, he, he told her, I'm sorry, she, <laughs> she told him that... Um, that she just didn't think she could go on, that, that uh, something, there had been yet another divorce or yet another something in the newspapers about her children. And every time that happened, she, she felt that it was because she hadn't done the job. Okay. Thank you. Sure. But all, none, her, am I correct in this, that none of her children could sustain a relationship? Is that well, correct? They, am I going too yeah. far? No, they have, I think, I think the number is 19 marriages. I think that's right. Among her children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. That's a perfect lead into my question, which is, and I think you'd mentioned this before, uh, Mr. Ward, when you were here, that they had something like 18 divorces or something. Is that a result of Eleanor being not the ideal mother? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how you, uh, it must have been part of it, but I... Is there anything about uh, presidents' children? Oh, that it's suggest? awful. I think it's there's something about the children of presidents. Yeah. FDR, FDR said it's a god awful thing to be the child of a president, and I think I think that's true. I think uh, it, it, it really. I mean, you know better than I, but it really is, uh, <clears throat> especially now. But but even before, they everything they do is news. I, I think that has a lot to do with it, and I, and also there's the there's the the business of you, you you never know whether people are interested in you because you're you or because your last name is Roosevelt. That's very tough, and it, and that goes on through the generations. It's very tough. You know, you're bringing you. to mind, in my mind, because I covered Jimmy Carter's White House, Amy Carter, yeah. who they put into a public school. And it was a, a, a sort of spectacle when she started at that school, the press and everything followed her day in and day out. And uh, she became kind of a sullen kid in the White House. They'd make her go to these dinner parties and she'd read her book through the dinner party. And I wondered how she would turn out. So I met her just a couple of years ago. And she is, she is healthy. She's raising a couple of kids. She's got a strong marriage and she's lovely. So, I mean, it, it's not 100% yeah, by exactly. any stretch, yeah. But, but yeah, there's a history. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about FDR's father. Um, I believe he was 52 when he remarried, and Sarah was, I think, 25, and I've seen pictures of her. She was gorgeous. She was And indeed. she spoke several languages. She'd grown up in Hong Kong with her father. 
Right. What was their marriage like, and what kind of a father was James Roosevelt to? As far as I can see, he was a terrific father. Um, he, he adored this, this kid who I think was a surprise and, uh, and a delight. He'd already, he already had, uh, he married a member of the, of the um, a rich family. I can't remember their names, I apologize. Um, and had one son who, who was a sort of showy dilettante who married into the Astor family and retired. He, I saw his, some form he'd filled out and he was, I think he was 23, and it says retired capitalist, which is <laughs> not a bad thing to be at 23. Um, but uh, James Roosevelt, Mr. James, as everybody called him, was uh, uh, a lovely man with a very good sense of humor and, uh, and uh, uh, enormously fond of his son. Yeah. I mean, Franklin's strength of personality came from two loving parents. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much <clears throat> for this wonderful discussion. What kind of a grandmother was Eleanor? Because I remember when I was a teenager, a couple of things about her. One, that she took a European tour after the war, and she took one of her grandchildren with her on the plane, as I recall. Is there anything about Eleanor I, as a grandmother, considering her background and her rejection? I am... Uh... I am constrained by talking about her as a grandmother because I don't know very much about her. Oh. But there are those, I think there are people in the audience who do. So I, they're not, but they're not going to speak. Um, they seem to have a close uh, relationship. I mean, it was a no, girl. No, she did. It was a she girl did. that she, she was, took. I don't yes, remember and who. Yes, and she had, uh, um, Curtis was with her in, in, in the United Nations. I really don't know very much about her as a grandmother. Mm -hmm. I, Okay. Uh, I, that I just, was not a period I was writing about. <clears throat> I write a little bit about it. And, and uh, everything that I came upon was always describing her in relation to Sarah. So Sarah was doting, loving, generous, and Eleanor was distant. Now, that, it wasn't that she was distant, but it was in relation to Sarah. And the kids talk and have written and have been quoted is saying Sarah was the one they wanted to go to, and they called her Granny. And they called Eleanor Grandmère, as Jeff said. And I mean, that kind of describes the comparison. And obviously, she loved her grandchildren. You can't not love your grandchildren. You know, something you said about her being beautiful when she was younger. Uh, I'll just be very brief. I went to Hunter College, and I was about 17. And they had, uh, every Christmas, some famous person would come to speak. And that Christmas, it was Eleanor Roosevelt. And she came down the aisle just like this. And she was very tall. And she was older. She had white hair. And she was beautiful. She had a beautiful profile. And all these, this talk about her not being so. Yeah. And I was a kid. I'm looking up at her and saying, what is all this stuff they're saying? She's beautiful. And yeah. she was marvelous on the oh, stage. Oh, she didn't photograph well. Let's, let's but in person, she was beautiful. <laughs> Lovely. Part, part of the problem was that she did have uh, very prominent teeth, which the Theodore Roosevelt family wrote letters about, but never did anything about. Uh, they could perfectly easily have fixed that. And so there was orthodontia back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and other members of the family had had it. But they would all say, oh, she has unfortunate teeth. <laughs> 
and then and then leave it at and that. Do nothing about it. Yeah. Sorry. Um, hi, I'm a big uh, FDR fan. Number one, read many books, and I wasn't going to ask any questions today. But what came to me while you were speaking about the sons of FDR? They were really uh, used by other people you for bet. business purposes. Yep. And they were exploited for their name. But I remember reading that some of his sons would go to him and they would basically talk about business deals kind of, and he was seemed to be okay with that and would use his power of the presidency yeah. to help them along in some of these exploitative business relationships. And I was just wondering, didn't he see the, the moral difficulty with that? Have you dealt with that? I think he was very sympathetic to his sons. I think he thought on some level he had he had caused them trouble by becoming president. And I think if they could succeed at something, um, I mean, I, I don't think he used the power of the presidency in any nefarious way mm -hmm. at all. Um, but his name, you know, they were Roosevelt's. <laughs> and uh, I I do think he felt for them. I think he, I think he felt that he hadn't been home enough, uh, unavoidably, and that uh, uh, they had a tough road to hoe. I, I had um, uh, lunch with James Roosevelt very about a year before he died, maybe a year and a half before he died. And we had lunch on the west, Upper West Side, and he couldn't have been nicer and more helpful. And at the end of the lunch, he had tears in his eyes. And he said, Mr. Ward, I hope you will be able to tell me why my, why my father didn't come to my Groton graduation. Now that, I don't know how many years after that that was, but it shows you the price families pay for their, for their people going into politics. But you're suggesting that both Eleanor and Franklin felt guilty about not being more attentive. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Hi. On the day that the president died in the Warm Springs, uh, Lucy Mercer was visiting him. Do you know if the president requested her to be there, or did he have some idea that he might be in his last days? I don't think he thought. I, I don't think he knew it was his last days, but he did ask her to come. Yeah, she came quite often when he was in Warm Springs, and Daisy Sutley was there, and uh, another cousin was there, all of whom adored him and all of whom sat around and, and listened to the stories they'd heard before. The account of those last days is, um, is it, to me, incredibly moving. Uh, at the very end, they were feeding him some kind of, uh, they call, Daisy calls it gruel, I think it was porridge or something. And he, he would get in bed and she would come in and feed him and he would pretend to be a baby. Now, this is the President of the United States wow. fighting the greatest war in human history. And uh, wow. he needed that maternal, um, unqualified adoration. Worship. And he deserved it at that time. He, d he did. <laughs> but you know, you read th through this book, and I was really struck by how indulgent Sarah was with him, how he could do no wrong. And he suffered as a kid because other, other kids didn't like him very much. 
but she kept him on that pedestal. And as reading through, I said, oh my goodness, he came to need it so desperately. He came to need what his yeah. mother had done, yeah. which was just tell him he was perfect and fabulous and make him the center. And that's, yeah. that's why I, that's why I, I think that's why he ran four times. I think he thought the natural order of the world was with Franklin Roosevelt in the White House. He'd been raised to believe that. Yeah. And, uh, well, and his father and it happened. voted too. So there you are. You know, I, let me look for this because I pulled out a quote, which I always loved, which I put down here so because I wanted to tell you. It's a quote from Churchill, who we all know kind of moved into the White House for a while mm. to convince the United States to come into the war. And he said, uh, Winston Churchill says, Franklin Roosevelt, with his iridescent personality, meeting him was like opening your first bottle of champagne. Knowing him was like drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he even strove to get other people to consider him the sun, mm -hmm. you know, meaning the sun in the sky, to come around and oh, worship. Oh, he did. did. Yeah. I forget what side I'm on. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm one of those um, silent grandchildren that you yes. were kind of looking at over yeah. here. Um, my name originally was Sarah Delano Roosevelt, so I carried that name for quite a while. And uh, I wanted just to say it was moving to hear about our father. Uh, that you had spoken with him. We didn't see a whole lot of him when we were children uh, because he did go on and marry other people. Right. <clears throat> um, but I, I was thinking from the perspective of a grandchild, um, which you've described you know, fully and well, that um, one incident sticks out in my mind very clearly. I was a I was a student uh, at Milton Academy in the girls' boarding school. And Mrs. Roosevelt was coming to give the graduation address to the then graduating seniors. And I was a sophomore. But she came to our house, uh, the boarding house, um, and sat in a chair. And I had been pulled aside for a moment by the headmistress to say hello to her in a private room, which was basically a kiss on the cheek. And, the, and so I came back and I sat on the very outskirts of this group of adoring girls. And Kate and I had another grandmother, had a maternal grandmother with whom we spent an awful lot of time. And we really didn't know Eleanor. Mm -hmm. um, I think I could say that. She probably knew her better than I did. Uh, but in any case, in this situation, I'm sitting and I suddenly have this revelation and I said, oh, I understand. She's everybody's grandmother, but she's not my grandmother. Oh, oh boy. Whoa. So, That's perfect. <laughs> did you call her grandmère? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, uh, no. Uh, Kate and I called her grandma. Okay. I think we were the only grandchildren who called her grandma. Uh -huh. Lovely. Thank you That's so much. Story. That was wonderful. <laughs> Very exciting to hear. Yeah. Thank so, you. So a, a question that is not totally unrelated to, to uh, what was said. I was uh, struck by your story on FDR's uh, grandparenting style 
And then, Leslie, you're citing that grandparents are spending so much more or supporting so much more grandchildren today. I was just wondering how social privilege and financial privilege shape grandparenting. Or is there some inherent biological gestalt because as now, uh, you know, income inequality increases significantly and grandparents serve such more of an active role in sustenance in the family, how would that compare from the depression to the recession and how does that shape the style of grandparenting? Right. Well, let me first say that I found that this uh, deep loving, this unconditional love for a grandchild is universal. It has nothing to do with income, education, there's nothing to do with what country you live in, uh, and it's not 100%. I've been criticized because I'm, somebody called a ra in a radio show and said, I'm not like that. But it's pretty much <laughs> the norm that people fall in love with their grandchildren. Going back to caveman times, <clears throat> grandmothers raised the grandchildren. So there is something inherent in our bones, in our DNA, that grandmothers need those grandchildren. We're supposed to be in their lives. We crave them when we're not. And we both grandfathers and grandmothers love them, it, it turns us silly, really, all of us. In terms of um, our contributions to their lives, obviously, if you're suffering uh, and, and are still suffering because of the recession, you can't send money because you don't have it. But uh, the baby boomers and generations older, the pre-boomers, as, as we're called, um, are, are the, the generations with the money in the country. It's inverted right now. In all of time, it was that the senior citizens, I hate that, senior citizens, uh, were the poorer ones, and our children uh, helped support us in old age. It's inverted. We're the ones with the money. We're the ones who still have pensions and Social Security and, right. and, and savings accounts and all of that. And the younger generations need our help. They're probably young parents, both working, not earning what one bread earner were earned in our generations. And so uh, we are a great many of us sending money if we have it. And we're, we're foregoing a lot to be able to send the money. Um, there have been sort of uh, surveys taken where grandparents put their grandchildren ahead of everything, ahead of their own financial well-being put the grandchildren ahead of traveling and seeing the world, and even change their idea of retirement if they realize that their kids um, in some way need help. So uh, I hope that answered your question. Yes, thank you. Um, my question is about the Roosevelt's in New York City. I, am, I work on East 65th Street, and I always stop to look at those two townhouses where mm -hmm. Sarah had one and Eleanor and Franklin had another. And I, and I always try to imagine what it must have been like when they were there. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about what their life was like when, when they were there in New York. Sure. When, uh, when Mrs. Roosevelt wrote her autobiography, she gives a pretty grim picture of that. There are two houses next to each other, the doors open in between, and you never knew when uh, your mother-in-law would suddenly appear, uh, <laughs> checking on things. Um, it, and it's, it's usually made to sound very uncommon. 
It was not uncommon. There were lots of houses like that in New York. In fact, they were the Roosevelts. Uh, yes, the Roosevelts were married in one. Uh, they in the in one of the parlors of a two two part house. Um, it it I think it was a you know it was a very complicated place. It's where it, it's a it's a wonderful site, and they've now. They haven't exactly restored it, but they, you can see it. You can go through it, which you couldn't do in the past. And uh, uh, I find it very moving. Uh, I, one of the one of the Roosevelt children died there. Uh, he was brought back there after he had polio. And there's a wonderful picture. It was one of my favorite pictures of him leaving the front steps of that house to go become president of the United States. <clears throat> and there are. Um, uh, railings so that he can go down and he's just about to sort of vault down mm. and his son James is patiently holding his cane at the end so that you can't quite see it but it's going to be handed to him but it's a great it's a to me that's a very emotional picture it's, it's a terrific, terrific place you know for all of time until the mid-20th century families lived in multi-generational houses or compounds. And again, this goes back to caveman times when families were structured sure. so that grandmothers were an integral and grandfathers were an integral part of families. They definitely lived together. And it's only in recent times with mobility uh, and the urbanization, really, that we have broken that up. And one of the things I say in the book is that it's unnatural. And there is a huge trend today, enormous trend, of grandparents, when they retire, selling the house they've lived in for 50 years and moving near their grandchildren. And more and more, the, the children are accepting it because they want the help. They need the help. And uh, the idea that the daughter-in-law and mother-in-law clash is as old as hum humanity. That's also built into our bones and our genes because the younger woman wants her husband to turn to her nest and break it, you know, break the connection with the mother. That went on even when they were all living in the same household. Sure. I just, just because you, whoever that was, brought up that uh, there's a nice irony. At the end of her life, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt shared a house <laughs> with uh, the doctor whom I mentioned before. And, uh, the, the lady who married the doctor, who's a friend, a lovely lady, uh, recounts uh, being in her bedroom with her, with her new husband and Mrs. Roosevelt appearing in the, in the doorway to say good morning, <laughs> which is, gives you it's just a sort of irony there somewhere. Definitely. <laughs> well, I can see that we could go on and on and on it asking fabulous questions uh, about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but I see someone with a hook. Yeah. Yes, and I have tons of questions myself, but someday we'll continue this. Um, Leslie Stahl and Jeffrey Ward, thank you so much. Was this was a different morning. That's really nice do it again. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it again. They, they will both be at the book signing table, so stay, pick up a book or two or three or four, and uh, you can continue the conversation outside. Thank you all so much for coming this morning. <laughs>